Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports, and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyze each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. It's 1992, one year after Michael's disappearance. Michael's community gathers for a church service in his memory. Just months before he vanished, Michael attended his sister Caitlin's christening here. Michael, too, was baptized in this church. And it is to this place and this community that the Dennehys turn for comfort and support. My dear friends of Michael, I know I join with the family and speak on their behalf in welcoming you to our service this afternoon as we pray to a loving Father for Michael's uh, protection and for his soon return to his family and to all of us. One of Crystal Dennehy's close friends described Crystal as a kind of little house on the prairie character. And she tells me this in the most loving way. Crystal bakes, she sews, she makes preserves. When I seek out a quiet place in the Dunahee home to record an interview, I end up upstairs in a room filled with fabric and projects on the go. The day Michael disappears, he's wearing a pair of multicolored rugby pants, his favorites, sewn by his mum. And it is these little pants which will stand out in the memory of an elderly woman you're about to meet in the episode ahead. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Missing Michael, Season 3 of Island Crime. The day Michael disappears, Sunday, March 24, 1991, is a busy afternoon on the playing field. Dozens of players and their families are coming and going. The neighborhood is densely populated with low-rises and townhouses and lots of kids. And yet, Michael vanishes within minutes of being out of his parents' sight while they are nearby at the football field. How is it possible no one saw anything? In this episode, you will hear from an 81-year-old woman who believes she witnessed the abduction of Michael Dunahy. Norma contacts me after I post a notice on the Michael Dunahy Facebook page the family maintains. Hello, I'm Norma. Norma and I email back and forth for a time. And the first time we actually talk, it is over the phone. She quickly launches into her story. And it was such a beautiful Sunday, quiet, and, and I had to go to the office because I had quite a few uh, closing deals and new deals, and I had a lot of work to do before Monday morning. So I'm driving down Warp Street, I'm about three quarters way down, and I see ahead of me, like there's a school there. 
and I see this young lad, a young kid, running across the front of the kitty corner across the, part, the, the front lawn. And then I see another one running right behind him, and I thought, oh boy, better watch those kids because you don't know where they're going. So the, 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 the little one at the front, he ran across the street. As I'm getting closer to the corner to turn right, he ran across the street, and she, the person behind him was running, and she dove at him, and she grabbed him by the legs and pulled him down. So she tackled him, just like a, playing football. And he went down hard. And I thought, little bums, you know, they kids, right? But then the, the person that, that took him down, she reaches up on her, on her hands and she looks at me and she's just sort of like staring at me. And I thought, oh, what are you doing? I wonder what's going on here. So I stopped at the stop purposely to see what they were doing because I wasn't in that much of a hurry, but I had work to do. So she gets up and she grabs the little guy by the hand, by the arm, and she marches him across. She was now on my side uh, of King Street. She marched him across in front of me on Wark Street. And I looked at her. Uh, she was close enough. I saw the freckles on her nose. I saw that she was native or Maisie, whatever. I saw that. And I looked at the boy and he had blonde hair, blue eyes, and he was being pulled. And I, I looked at him and I thought, is there something going on here? But then I looked at him and he had these bright colored pants on, like different colors, blues and yellows and reds. And, and I thought, oh. and that's the way I looked at it. Well, then she crossed over on work. And then she stopped for a second. She was going to walk down work towards Bay. Then she stopped, halted, and she started to walk down King Street. And I looked over, and in that, there was a, like a, a um, back alley type thing over there. And there was this van. It was parked there. The guy was on the standing on the outside, holding his driver's door open, looking at the situation. The side door on, the, on, on my side was flung open and there was a brownie colored blanket hanging out of the out of the car out of the van and she kept walking down the road and there was you know, there was one car on the road and it was a green a dark green i keep saying a pontiac but i haven't got a clue what kind of car it was but it was a dark green car and i thought well i guess she's going to that car i don't know but i was curious of why the van was there so I said, I'm going to go slowly down here to see what's going on. So I got to the end and the light had turned red for me to stop. So that was good. So I looked in my rear view mirror. The man from the van was in the center of the road, standing with a, a dark skinned man and a, like uh, a black, you know, black man in the center of the road. And I thought, well, why are they, why are they doing that? You know, I, I was so, I said, okay. I'm going to pull into my parking lot, which was on the other side of Quarter and King there, because that was where the real estate office was then. And if they're still hanging around like that on the road, I'm phoning the police. I pulled into my parking lot. I looked. They were all gone. Everybody was gone. This is not the first time Norma has seen this van in the area. 
In fact, she had recently seen the van and taken notice of it for a different reason. I saw that same van on the Friday night before, Friday afternoon at 4.30. Again, I was coming down that road and he was parked there and I was caught in traffic. And so I couldn't move, you know, because the light was on Quadra was, was red for us. And he, he was in the van and he's leaning forward, looking out the window with a big grin on his face. She was there both also leaning forward looking. And I thought, what the heck are you looking at? So I followed their view and over across the road, there was a, I, I guess it's still there, there a, was a play area for kids, like a little park. And I thought, well, why are you looking at those kids? Well, then the light changed and everybody went on. And the, the, the van stayed there. I don't know where it went. Well, it was the same van. The next day, when Norma comes to work, everyone is talking about the missing boy, Michael. Norma believes what she witnessed could be connected to the boy's disappearance. She calls the police for the first time that night, but doesn't feel her story is taken seriously. But later, two police officers come to see her at the office. On April 2, 1991, Victoria's Times Colonist newspaper runs a story about a woman being hypnotized in an effort to get her to reveal a license plate number. Here's what Norma first tells me she remembers about the van. But it didn't, it, it felt to me it should have had some sort of an emblem on the front of it, but there was none. But it was a light tan and, and a darker, like a cream, a light cream and a little darker cream at the bottom. The age was old. There was no windows in it except for the front, of course. I couldn't see the back. There was a door at the back. I don't know. I Just at the side, I saw. You know? And so I saw half of a driver, a, a license plate. It was one too old. The other half was bit underneath the car. And then they put me through um, um, hypnosis, trying to find out something, I guess, about the license plate. And I, I did go under a little bit. I don't know how much I did. And, but, I, you know, the license plate was pushed under. I can't really find it when it's pushed under, you know? I ask her to try to remember as much as she can now about the woman she believes she saw take down the little boy. When, I, when she got close right to the front of my car, she was brought, walked right across in front of my car. She didn't look at me then. She only looked at me when she had tackled him on the ground and looked up. And when she walked across, she had little freckles on her nose. I would say she was in her, I, she could have been close to 30. Maybe anywhere between 25 to 30. I would say that age, no older. And she was only about, oh, now he was only a little guy. And she was, I'd say maybe she was about five foot two. She wasn't skinny, but she wasn't fat and uh, dark. Like a little bit of a, her hair was had a little bit of a, a, a gold touch in it. Like, you know, like auburn. She was sort of a pretty woman. Her recollections of the man are a little less clear. He had light-colored blonde hair, uh, curly, but looked like more like a perm. He was probably six foot, I'd say maybe six foot two. His weight, he was slender, um, long arms, long, long body, you know. And his face was, he had a long face, long face. 
He would be close to 40. Today, Norma feels some guilt about not doing something to help at the time. She tells me she wants answers before she dies. I'm 81 now, and I would hate to have to pass on and not know where that child is. I just, it was just, it's just not right. That poor little boy. And, and it's my fault too, because I didn't know either. One of the reasons that I moved up to Nanaimo was because of that. Because I couldn't drive down Bay Street and go past work. I couldn't go down King Street. I couldn't go down Quadra. It was a nightmare in my head. I couldn't do it. And then, of course, every year they had the same marathon, you know. I couldn't handle it. So I, that's why one of the reasons we moved up here was just to get away from it. And even now, when I hear it coming on, they're saying that they're, you know, maybe a run for Michael Dunn. Yeah, shut it off the radio. I don't listen to it. Because it's just, it's, it's like an, it's a nightmare. It's haunting me because I didn't do something about it. I didn't help that little guy. Please drive to Highlighted Route. I decide I need to meet with Norma face to face. I drive across the island to record an interview with her. These days, Norma lives in a mobile home park in a forested area just off the main highway. It's been a long, hot summer and the area Norma lives in is a tinderbox. Much of the West Coast is on fire, and there's been a massive wildfire burning not far from her home. She has brightly colored, well-tended flower pots lining her driveway. She has told me she is 81, but she could easily pass for a decade or so younger. She appears quite strong and healthy. She's sitting at her outside patio with a laptop propped up in front of her. Norma shares this place with a little black and white cat named Kiko. And he had never been on grass, never been outside. And he came out here like a big turtle, just laid there. Oh, you're beautiful. And so after a few days of just playing a turtle, I put him down on the ground and he realized he could do things. Yeah. And he loved... Kiko is wearing a smart tuxedo styled harness and sits on a leash beside her. And we can go in, or I think we can stay out. Whatever, whatever is good for I you. Okay, what would you like, a cold drink or a coffee? I, I don't need anything. I'm really more just listening for sound. So if you're comfortable sitting outside, Not yeah? Okay, okay, great. I'm gonna bring my, my... Back in 1991, Norma is a realtor, working at the home finder's office in the neighborhood where Michael vanishes. You've heard Norma's account of what she saw on Sunday, March 24, 1991. When I sit face to face with Norma and hear her tell her story again, I'm trying to judge how accurate her account is. This time, Norma has a map up on the computer screen in front of her. She's showing me where she was with a pointer on the screen. Eyewitness accounts aren't always reliable especially after 30 years. But the account she gives me in person months after that initial call is largely consistent. Listen again for yourself as she describes what she believes is the abduction of Michael Dunahy. So I was coming down the street back here. And I'm way back here, so I'm halfway down the street. And I saw from here... 
I didn't see the van here because it wasn't close. But from here, across, 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 the little lad ran. Right behind her was another one that was a bit taller. Thinking to myself, uh-huh, I've got to watch these kids because they're just flailing around. Yeah. They can run out in front of me and I can knock them over. I'm thinking these things. Right there, she tackled him. She just flew at him and tackled him and grabbed him around the leg. I thought, whew, that's pretty good. You know, all these things going through my mind. Nothing dangerous. She had him down. He's laying flat on the ground. She looked up like this at me as if like, and I thought, well, that's a strange look. So I stopped right here. And I thought, I'm going to take my time, see what's going on here. She got up, grabbed him by the arm, marched him across the street in front of me, right across in front of me. And I looked, she was part native, anyways. And just tell me a little bit more about that description. At one point, I think you thought maybe she was like an older sister. Well, yeah, I wasn't, you know, because she was so little. And then I realized she was not a child. I thought she was a kid. Two kids playing, wrestling around like kids do, right? That's what I thought. And then when she's walking across, I thought, well, you're a lot older than that. And she had freckles on her face. Her hair had, was, was a little bit longish, and it was had a, had a sort of an auburn highlights in it, but not natural. It was natural highlights. It wasn't dyed or anything. It was natural highlights. Can't remember what she was wearing. And she's pulling the little guy behind her, and I looked at the little guy, and he looks up at me in those big, sad eyes as he's being pulled along. And he said, and his mouth was saying something, and I looked at his clothes, and I looked at his pants, because he had those bright blue, red, yellow pants on. So she walked over here. When she got to the, to the sidewalk here, she didn't know whether to go this way. She started to walk this way, then she stopped, and she walked down the street there. Then I looked over and I saw the van, so I turned around the corner, and I remembered it was from Friday, and he was parked there. Now, the only thing so else, sorry, say again, he was right he was... parked here, not completely on the slope, but a little bit up here, right about there. So is that, am I correct in thinking that's a similar place to where he was before? It's the same place the he was. Same. Yes. Okay. The same place he was right. on Friday. Okay. That's why I was shocked. Why, why are you here? And once again, I asked Norma to try to recall as much as she can about the vehicle. And But everybody start about the van. What kind of van was it? I don't know. I have no idea. Was it a, a, a Volkswagen? Maybe. They're, they're quite... But it had, like, the top was a light color, a lightish beige, beige. And then the bottom had a little rim, like the rim, and then the bottom was a, a darker beige. And, of course, in my mind, I have to have it perfect. And I couldn't get the colors perfect, what people were trying to tell me, and they weren't perfect. So my mind said, no, that's not it. So this is where I have trouble communicating when I see something in one way, and it's not coming out what's being presented. It doesn't work. I have to have it perfect. I also ask what, if anything, she remembers about the license plate. And so anyways, we went over it and over it. And I said, the, 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 
the van had a license plate on it, and it was like tipped it down like this. This part was tucked under, and it one two oh one twenty. Anyways, um. So tell me about that. Well, they wanted to get the license, the rest of the license plate. I guess they 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 may have got me a little because I can't come through and I'm up like this some for some reason, but I can't remember because the license plate was down bent underneath the car or the front. They were just trying to find more about the van, I guess. So I couldn't really tell them about the license plate. So. And so sorry that, you know, a few of the people who were there that day talked about how the police were using hypnosis with them as, as well. Um, but I'm just curious about how that all worked. Well, I really don't know. They didn't learn anything from me because they only asked about the, the license plate. And I told him what I saw, one, two, oh. Under that, I couldn't tell if it was a five. It could have been the next number was a five, but the other ones for sure I couldn't see them. I wrestled with whether or not to include Norma's account here. Her description sounds credible, but I'm less certain about other aspects of Norma's story. She tells me she sees the man twice in the weeks after Michael's abduction. She also repeatedly talks about the extent to which he reminds her of her ex-husband, a man who I learned passed away in the summer of 1991. My husband is a judge, and sometimes I bounce questions off of him. He tells me it's possible to find one part of a statement credible while not entirely believing everything that has been said. Norma was hypnotized in an effort to draw out some details. And that process, too, could have had an impact on the memory itself. I think about Norma, about how she repeatedly sought out the police with her story, about how she doesn't really come out looking particularly good in this story, how she herself recognizes she could have done more in that moment. Parts of Norma's backstory I have been able to corroborate. I speak with a fellow realtor who worked with Norma back then. She remembers Norma fondly and confirms Norma was working at the office near where Michael disappeared. And there's an old article in a newspaper where Detective Al Cochran is appealing for a witness from a real estate office who came forward at the time of the abduction to come forward again. Al Cochran confirms that he and a partner interviewed Norma, and it was his impression at the time that she sincerely believed she had witnessed Michael's abduction. To me, and when Daryl and I and the rest of the team, with Michelle, and um, worked on it, it, it was certainly a tip that we took seriously, especially after Daryl and I interviewed her again. Mm -hmm. And we're able to, you know, when you have a face-to-face -face with someone, it, it also gives you that, okay, like this person has an honesty about them. There wasn't a, mm -hmm. there's no outside motive here. Mm -hmm. And even how she kind of, disappeared and just went on with her life like I did I came forward I told you what I saw yeah whatever happened there um it was certainly a tip that we that we looked at and were very serious Norma thought the woman she saw with the boy was indigenous or in the words she used 
native or Métis. Norma is an 81-year-old white woman. It's possible she didn't get this right. Let me explain. I have family members who are indigenous. They are frequently asked if they are Chinese, Hawaiian, Iranian, Portuguese, which is to say the woman Norma saw may well not have been indigenous. If what Norma saw that day was indeed the abduction of Michael Dennehy, then Norma has witnessed a very rare thing, a stranger abduction. Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyse each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. David Finkelhor is director of the Crimes Against Children Research Center in the United States. He's the author of several books in this area. I asked him to speak to me about Michael's case. I'm the director of the Crimes Against Children Research Center at the University of New Hampshire in the U.S. And we try to keep tabs on the research and conduct new research about all different kinds of crimes against kids, child abuse, bullying, property crimes, internet crimes. But one of the main things we've done over the years is we've been uh, the researchers who've conducted the National Incident Study of Missing, Abducted, Runaway and Thrown Away Children in the United States, which is a study that's funded by our U.S. Department of Justice to try and um, estimate the number of different kinds of missing children episodes that happen. It's a cliche for a reason. The idea of having your child snatched by a stranger is indeed every parent's nightmare. And as such, it occupies a large place in our psyche. But stranger abductions represent a very small danger to children. Stranger abductions of children are very rare and actually getting rarer. Um, they are the least common of the kinds of missing children's cases that we track. Uh, we estimated in our last effort, which is now over 12 years old in the US, that there were something on the order of 115 cases of stranger abduction that occurred in the course of a year. Cases have been declining uh, for a number of reasons, but one of them is that the general high level of surveillance that exists in so many public places and in society in general makes it much more difficult to uh, carry out one of these kinds of crimes and not be detected, makes it much easier to recover children once they have been abducted. So um, it's had a, a deterrent effect. Not to mention people with cell phones, people, even offenders carry around cell phones, and children carry around devices which allow them to be located. Or, uh, so it's, it's a very different environment. 
And it turns out an abduction of a four-year-old boy like Michael is an even greater aberration. So the prime targets of stranger abduction are teenage girls, because the motive of most of these crimes is sexual assault, and those are the prime targets for sexual assault. Um, there are younger children, particularly over the age of eight, who are in the category of being of attraction for some kinds of uh, pedophilic child molesters. Um, I would say that a child of four is really fairly unusual. That does not fit the profile of most uh, pedophilic child molesters. And um, just children of that age are, are not very frequently abducted by strangers. One of the things that's so puzzling about Michael's case is the fact that he vanished from a place Michael and his family did not routinely visit. An outsider wouldn't have predicted that Michael would be on his own in that playground. Remember, it was his first time playing at this spot, even for a few moments on his own. Which has always suggested a crime of opportunity. But that, too, is unusual. I think they're generally planned. Um, maybe not planned over a long period of time, but someone uh, is, is, you know, feeling some kind of need or compulsion to have this kind of experience, a sexual act with a child, and then they start cruising around and looking for available children. They may have been aware of this for a while and have plotted out places and surveilled places where they could go. We know the place where Michael vanished is a place where children were frequently playing. Two playgrounds, a school and a daycare nearby. So it's possible the abductor planned to take a child, and it just happened that Michael was there. Because stranger abductions are so rare, and David is one of the leading experts to have studied them, I try to extract as much information as I can that could shed light on Michael's case. I ask him what he makes of the place Michael disappeared, in a playground, in broad daylight. You, you know, you get kids in, play, in public places where there seems to be traffic and other people, but somehow it doesn't get noticed, or uh, it can happen in a rural area, or you know, on a residential street when nobody is is paying attention. It does seem a little bit strange that there weren't any witnesses. So, what does motivate an individual to take a child? Yeah, about 75% of them are sexually motivated. I mean, there are a few other things. Used to be ransom kidnappings were more common. You know, the, you know, the Lindbergh baby was a young kid who was abducted by a stranger, and that left a scar on public consciousness in the United States you know, in the 1930s, but those ransom kidnappings are, are very rare. And when they occur, they tend not to be from the families of rich people, but from the families of marginal people. I mean, like somebody, you know, takes the child of a drug dealer to make him, you know, pay the money that they think he owes them or something like that. But, the, but sexual motivation is what lies behind most of these abductions. 
In Michael's case, police looked carefully at known sex offenders. And I asked David if child abductors usually have a criminal history of this sort of thing. I mean, you know, there are a lot of sex offenders who've committed numerous crimes but have not been identified, you know, for one reason or another. So there certainly are plenty of the abductions. I don't have a number for it. The offender turns out to be somebody with a criminal history of sex offenses, but not all of them. So could Michael's abductor have been someone who wasn't at that point in the system as a known sex offender? Someone who perhaps had previously committed offenses, but for whatever reason hadn't been charged. I've made an assumption that most child abductors are male, but that isn't always the case. Um, so there's a category of infant abduction that is primarily women. Um, these are women who uh, abduct a child in order to raise them as their own. They're, they're women who've lost a child or are trying to acquire a child in order to save their marriage or um, some other need to, you know, quickly become a parent. And so sometimes you get women abducting children from nurseries and hospitals. They tend to be fairly young children. But there is, when, when you're talking about a young child, that sometimes is, there sometimes are women in that abductor category. And it turns out I'm incorrect on another assumption as well. I ask if most children abducted by strangers are usually killed or never found. No, most of them end with the child being released. So recovery is, is, happens in a majority of the cases because the offender, once the, the, get the, obtain the sexual gratification, main motive for killing the child is to prevent identification. With a child who's four, that wouldn't be as strong a motive as it might be with a 14-year-old or a 12-year-old. I mean, homicide is a big danger, and there has been, I mean, at one point when we were measuring that issue, you know, close to half of the kids were being, who were abducted by strangers in a serious kind of way where that they were actually went missing. you know, die. But the last time we did it, the number that ended in homicides was down to around 15%. The circumstances of Michael's story are so very unusual. They lead the world's leading expert on child abductions to ask this question. How did the police discount the possibility that the child went missing for some other reason? In preparation for our interview, David has read some stories online about Michael's case, but tells me the answer to that question wasn't obvious to him. Usually when a four-year-old goes missing, it is either a family abduction, it is a child who gets lost or killed or injured in some kind of area where people can't, you know, can't access them, or it turns out to be a family homicide that is being disguised as a uh, stranger abduction that the parents want to put the police off their tracks. David wants to be clear. He is not suggesting this is true in Michael's case. 
And the last thing he would want to do is re-traumatize Michael's family and friends with any speculation as to their involvement. He is simply clarifying how unusual the circumstances are. It is a compelling story. It certainly has tremendous potential for mystery, but I, I, I do have to say that it is just very, very unusual. One of the serious problems that we have in the crimes against children domain is that people are unduly, not that's not, I can't even put it strong enough, they are tremendously, exaggeratedly over-concerned about the problem of children being abducted by strangers. And children are at high risk for crimes, but that is not really a crime that is very prominent or that we really need to spend a lot of time protecting children from. It is really crimes that occur at the hands of uh, family members, people in the neighborhood, friends, peers. Peers. In all of the stories I've read over the years, I don't think it has ever been suggested that other children could have been involved. But we know when the Dunahees arrive at the field, there are other children at the playground. Children who are no longer there when Michael disappears. In just a few years after Michael goes missing, in 1993, the world will be horrified by the abduction and murder of a two-year-old English boy, Jamie Bulger, killed by two 10-year-olds. Again, an extremely unusual case. But when David mentioned peers, I wondered to what extent children in the area were ever considered for their possible involvement. It is very strange the way we are so attuned in our kind of fear center to be thinking about these strangers' abductions of children. They may have to do with something about our past and tribal cultures where, you know, people would swoop down from competing tribes and steal our kids. It is not really all that relevant to our, the dangers that we live in today. And so I spend a lot of time trying to get people to stop worrying about stranger abduction and to worry about other things. But they are so compelling that it's a hard thing to do. It's a trauma, maybe in part because it's something everybody identifies with. It's something everybody can imagine happening to them if they have children. And it also stays in the news for a long period of time. So they're, you know, they're reminded of it. So it's a flashbulb kind of crime that, that is top of, becomes top of mind when people think of children's safety issues. David is right, of course. We know kids are more likely to be hurt by people they know. But I also think about the police officer who told me there were 30 child sex offenders in the area where Michael was taken. And of the man who recounted an attempted abduction of a child from around that time, where the would-be abductors had learned the kids' names. Detective Robertson's gut tells her Michael's abductor is already on their radar. And retired detective Al Cochran seems to think so as well. Sometimes some people fall through the cracks and for whatever reason, it just, they just seem to always skate on the fringe. Mm -hmm. 
Like I, I always look back to Clifford Olson mm -hmm. and say, well, you know, his name was brought up earlier in the file by a traffic member. Um, but, you know, it, it wasn't until quite a few victims later that he was really brought to attention. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, you know, we're, we're just human and there's always personalities involved in everything. But I can never question how hard the original investigation was done. Mm -hmm. right? The effort that was put in, the energy, the support we have to try to bring Michael home. And they did. Somebody knows that one thing that'll just open the crack of the door to get, get us going to, to find Michael. If Michael was taken by a stranger 30 years ago, there is the possibility he never made it off the island alive. But until there is proof to the contrary, Michael's family continue to hold out hope he is out there somewhere alive. In the episode ahead, how DNA could be the last best hope for finding Michael. But first, a word from one of Michael's heroes. Michael Dunahy loved the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Back when Michael was a little guy, loving the magic of the turtles, I had the privilege of being the voice of Michelangelo. I'm Townsend Coleman, a voice actor, and one of the many people who want answers in Michael's case. The turtles were crime fighters who believed in justice. If you have any information about Michael, please head to michaeldunahy.ca and click on the Report a Tip button. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Island Crime Season 3. Missing Michael. Hey, it's Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. I'm here to tell you how to get ad-free content and early access to episodes right now. All you need to do is subscribe to Island Crime Plus on Apple Podcasts. When you subscribe, you get to be first to hear new episodes, all ad-free. Pop down into the show notes for a direct link to subscribe. If you like Island Crime, you'll love Island Crime Plus.